Hello and welcome for the last time to the Jacobite podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before I start today's episode. Um, I'd like to thank the sender of an email who informed me just before this one that I've been saying Athol wrong the whole time. Um, I do appreciate feedback, as everyone knows, through all this. I have always held my hands up at a mistake. Um, I'm probably not going to go back and re-record them now, so um, I'm sorry for saying it wrong. And if you'd prefer me to say Athol rather than Atoll, if you could just go back and reimagine that, that'd be great. Um, Anyways, let's move on with the show and into our final part of the narrative. When we last left the Jacobites, they were in a state of disarray and loss with the main body of the army disbanding from Riven Barracks, in a case of every man for himself. In his memoirs, James Johnston, listed as the Chevalier de Johnston, describes how he headed from Riven to Rothimurcus, and ignoring advice to surrender, fled through Banth and on across various firths, including one episode where the two daughters of a man who'd hidden him helped him get across on a boat. He got to Leith and hid, recalling a tearful reunion with his father, He then hid with Lady Jane Douglas and headed incognito to London, on to Harwich in Essex, boarding a ship that then went to Hellevutslaus in the Netherlands, and on to freedom. He would live out his days in the service of France. His story echoes many others who fled the British Isles. Lord George Murray fled to the Dutch Republic, living out his days there. He only saw the Jacobite king and prince one more time, in 1747 when he travelled to Rome to an audience with King James. Charles had previously written to James requesting Murray be arrested, but James instead issued Lord George with a pension. Prince Charles and Murray had never spoke after Culloden. Murray's letters professing loyalty were never answered, and despite having his wife by his side, he died in exile in 1760, buried at Bonifacius Church in Medemblik in the Netherlands. In a strange twist, Lord George's son John Murray sat in Parliament and became the Duke of Athol on the death of his uncle, despite his own father's explicit Jacobitism. But what came of Prince Charles? Well, his plan was to escape to the Hebrides after it was clear the men hunting him were going to put off any escapes from the coast. He headed off to the islands, completely shedding the fancy lodgings and gourmet food for caves and bodies, eating anything he could catch and in extremely hard times, eating nothing but oatmeal mixed with salt water. The Royal Escape Party had friends along the route. They provided shelter, food, whiskey or brandy. The latter probably helped provide some escape for Charles from his despairing situation, and relief from the bites of the notorious Scottish midges. But alcohol was to play a role in Charles's life from this point on. Charles did get an advantage from a very loyal supporter, paying the ultimate price to help him escape. A man by the name of Roderick Mackenzie had fought with the Jacobite cavalry. He too was tall and slender, with, some saying, even some resemblance to Prince Charles. Upon being spotted by a redcoat patrol, Roderick drew his sword and engaged the soldiers. Hopelessly outnumbered, Roderick Mackenzie shouted in his dying breaths, You have killed your prince! whilst surrounded by government troops, who had never met Prince Charles and could well have believed they had killed the heir to the Jacobite throne. There was still also the rather large matter of a £30,000 bounty on the head of the young Stuart. And so it was these young soldiers beheaded Roderick Mackenzie's body, 
took the head to camp and buried the body where it fell. The story then turned somewhat to farce when the group asked Alexander MacDonald, a Jacobite prisoner of Fort Augustus, if he could identify Charles's head. As a joke, MacDonald replied he could if it was attached to the body. The officer, without missing a beat, then asked if he thought it would be possible to do so without the body. MacDonald replied he could not, and instead the head was sent to London preserved in alcohol. It's not known what happened to this head, or who they tried to get to identify it in a jar down in London, and some should say have this story as an urban myth, but Maggie Craig in her book uh, Berast Banditi of Men of the 45 attests to the contemporary accounts and continued presence of this story in the Glenmoriston area, and it does appear to have been an easing of the searching for Prince Charles, which would have allowed him to get off the mainland and to the relative safety of the Hebrides. Charles hid on the islands and spent his time in a fluctuation of moods, happy and carousing one minute, sullen and morose the next. He asked, if at all possible, if he could meet again with Alexander MacDonald and request his help escaping. An odd request, considering that Alexander MacDonald was the same man who told Charles and the seven men of Moidart to get back on their boat in 1745 and return to France. Nonetheless, he came to see Charles on Barra, where he found the prince sleeping off a very heavy drinking session from the night before, which only continued when Alexander MacDonald arrived. The celebrations continued until news arrived that the Sky Militia was landing to search for Jacobites, and it was clear that Charles had to leave. For those of you playing Jacobite Bingo at home, we are indeed about to introduce the story, Flora MacDonald. Flora was the stepdaughter of one Hugh MacDonald, who ironically was a captain in the same militia that had just landed to catch Charles and succeeded in capturing Alexander MacDonald and sending him off to London for imprisonment. Charles asked Flora to help him to get to Skye with Neil McKeekin, the man he'd been staying with. Between them, they invented the character of Betty Burke, a six-foot slender Irish maidservant. Charles would become Betty to get to a boat and would be carried to the Isle of Skye. Yes, just like the song. Charles was eager to take to this plan, as who was going to question two women who were in a boat? Legend has it that Flora then had to persuade Charles not to stuff two pistols into his dress, stating it would be far too suspicious to find arms on a maid if she was searched. Charles is then said to have replied that if they searched him down there, the pistols would be the second most suspicious thing to his maid's disguise. Despite McEakin's assertion that Charles was the most unconvincing woman stomping along through the hillsides in the most masculine of walks, nonetheless, the plan was a success, and Charles landed in Skye and made his way to Portree. On July 1st, 1746, Charles gave some money he borrowed from Flora back to her and kissed her hand. He bid her farewell and continued what had been known as his skulking of the highlands and islands. Flora's life took a dramatic turn on July the 12th when government troops arrested her and after her ferryman broke under questioning, giving up Flora and Betty Burke, she was then taken to the mainland and kept for a short time at Dunstaffnage Castle. To briefly sum up Flora MacDonald, she was taken to London to face trial but never made it to trial before being released under the general amnesty that was declared in July 1747. 
She then returned to Scotland, maintaining a certain level of celebrity and something of a rallying point for Jacobite sympathisers and guest-of-society functions. She and her husband would emigrate to America, even supporting the British during the American Revolution. She eventually returned to Skye, passing away in 1790. And if you're ever up by the Skye Museum of Island Life, a short trip up the road is the cemetery of her final resting place. I often recommend a visit, though it might be raining, but it is a beautiful spot with a very large Celtic cross atop her stone. Whilst Flora was being taken for arrest, Charles had heard that his salvation was en route in the form of French ships L'Heureux and Le Prince de Conti. Charles, Neil McKeegan, John Roy Stewart, Thomas Sheridan and around a hundred Scots boarded the French frigates of Loch Namur on September 20th and they set sail, landing at Brittany on September 30th, 1746. The safe passage was down to the efforts of O'Sullivan, the Irish commander, who'd fled to Norway in June and crossed Europe to reach France, and upon arriving he implored King Louis to send help for Charles. Thanks in part to his efforts, Charles was now safe in France, and Louis sent word that he was welcome at Versailles. Charles's brother Henry travelled to Molay, where Charles was staying and warmly welcomed his brother. Henry would spend a lot of time with his brother over the next few weeks at the Chateau de Saint-Antoine, listening to Charles tell tales of daring due of the rising of the 45. Henry wrote to their father, James, the Jacobite King of Scotland and England, informing him that Charles was well, and they'd got on very well, dining every day together. It's probably a relief for James, given that he'd been writing to plead for Charles to be safe the whole time. Charles found many of these letters addressed to him in France, his dearest Carluccio. Henry was treated with some hostility by Charles's followers as they felt Henry had dragged his feet a little bit in France and had failed effectively to convince Louis to send French troops to help the ailing force before Culloden. Charles would then make his way to the Royal Court of France and was lauded by all the nobility present. Charles again felt a certain pride at being the man of the hour, but he was somewhat concerned the king wasn't taking him aside to speak in private to plot their next great move together. Even being invited to a private supper with the king and his mistress, the Madame du Pompadour, wasn't enough for Charles. He had to get to Louis to talk next steps. He sent a note to the king at the table, giving a signal by which, if Louis approved, they could retire to a room to speak privately. To Charles's chagrin, no reply was given, and no meeting took place. It had been made clear that French help would not be forthcoming. The Jacobite movement was on its own. In my opinion, this should not necessarily have come as a shock. Throughout the Risings, the French had made a great show of supporting the Jacobites, but like the Cold War powers later in history, the French would exploit the Jacobite army as a proxy force, a way to needle English and later British troops, and draw them from European conflicts to further French interests. That James III and VIII was not back on his throne was completely immaterial to the French, Cumberland and the troops he commanded were taken from Flanders to crush Charles, leaving the road open for France to advance her objectives. Charles took all this very badly. Living in Grace and Fay, the homes of the French state, racking up debts and drinking and rabble-rousing with his fellow émigrés in taverns and parties. Charles's brother Henry watched this with shock and disdain. Several of Charles's followers, who had grumbled in private amongst themselves, took this time to grow bolder. George Kelly, 
an Anglican priest who had joined Charles's drinking rabble-rousing, took one dinner at Henry's house to speak his mind. He asked why the troops were never sent from France, and he berated Henry for not really taking command. Charles sat quietly, saying nothing in his brother's defence, leading Henry to round on all of his accusers, telling anyone who knew what he was talking about would know there was never a possibility of sailing those ships at any point. He also took umbrage at how brazenly these men were attacking him, given he was still the Duke of York and third in line to succession. The fact that Charles had sat quietly spoke volumes to his younger brother. Henry had always been more quiet, studious, sensitive, uh, but he was also more pious. He felt Charles was heading down a very different path to him. And it was in May of 1747, Prince Henry returned to Rome in secret to his father's palace, and within the month, on June 30th, 1747, Henry attended the Sistine Chapel, where he was proclaimed Cardinal Deacon of the Catholic Church. He was presented with the red skull cap and biretta that denoted a cardinal. Henry held receptions at his father's palace, receiving congratulations from well-wishers of fellow clergy and foreign diplomats. Everyone except Charles. He was far from thrilled. He opposed this on two grounds. Firstly, that the oath of celibacy taken by the Catholic clergy meant Henry could only produce illegitimate heirs. Any children he had would not be eligible to sit on the throne, and therefore it was on Charles and his heirs to maintain the line. The second role was purely political, in that Charles felt this would deliver a fatal blow to any chance of the Stuart family retaking the throne of Great Britain. At this point in history, there's still a very heavy anti-Catholic discrimination in the country at the time. They're still smarting from the regime of James II, Charles felt he'd made progress in trying to distance his brand of Jacobitism from being perceived as under the control of Rome. Having a member of the Stuart royal family not only as a member of the Catholic clergy, but one of the Pope's closest advisers, was probably going to torpedo the whole thing. To Charles, the fight was still on, but some historians have argued that from the actions of King James and Cardinal Henry, the pair of them had accepted the reality Culloden had been a point of no return. The Jacobite movement had tried to seize the throne and failed hard. Their allies paid them lip service, but offered no further help. Maybe King James and Henry felt that it was time to consolidate their positions in Italy and give up on the crown. Charles would never lose hope. He continued to lobby previous allies for forces to take action. But missions to France and later Spain bore absolutely no fruit. Charles would not return to Britain in 1747. Back in Britain, the government had pacified the remaining rebels and dragged the lords and earls they'd captured to face trial in London. Amongst them was Simon Fraser, the Lord Lovett and chief of Clan Fraser. By this time, William Murray, the Marquess of Tullibardine, had died in the Tower of London after taking ill. Lords Cromarty, Kilmarnock and Balmerino had all been convicted and suffered the sentence of treason to be hanged, drawn and quartered. The only concession made by the state to these condemned men was their sentences were commuted to death by beheading. Fraser's trial went to a rocky start. It was clear the public and the prosecutors were out for blood, but some, like MP Horace Walpole, felt the court risked some sympathy for their enemy by relentlessly prosecuting an old wretch of a man who was defending himself. 
problem was most of the evidence showed Lovett as a disgruntled, out-of-favour noble, but it couldn't definitively prove treason. And then the prosecution unveiled their star witness. And I will allow a man to step forward I have left out of the limelight until this point. John Murray of Broughton. This Murray was not a member of the Athol Murrays we encountered previously, but a younger man, born in 1715, who'd made the wealthy young man's pilgrimage of the Grand Tour, and joined Rome's Masonic Lodge, where many Jacobites met. He was appointed as a Jacobite agent, later becoming personal secretary to Prince Charles, once he landed in Scotland. Murray of Broughton would stay by Prince Charles right up until Culloden, when he was captured and rounded up with other Jacobites in the Tower of London. In a bid to save his own life, Murray turned King's evidence and testified to the writings Lovett had made to Charles. These sealed Lovett's fate, and on April 9th, 1747, Simon Fraser, the 11th Lord Lovett, was beheaded on Tower Hill, the last person in Britain to suffer this sentence for treason. Incidentally, it's also said that in his last moments before his execution that he was laughing at the fact that a stand of spectators had collapsed and many were injured. He found the irony of people suffering while he was about to die quite delicious and it's said that that is where the phrase laughing one's head off came from. As part of the government's victory lap, the British state decided to prevent something like this from ever being able to happen again, as well as sentencing some rebels and transporting others to sentences of indentured labour in the colonies. There was a concerted effort to improve infrastructure in Scotland by finishing Wade's road network, commissioning the first ordnance survey maps and renovating the Highland forts. The centrepiece of this fort renovation was Fort George in Ardesir, which was started soon after the 45 Rising, completed in the 1760s, and is still an active military base to this day. The Acts of Prescription in 1746 were then passed by Parliament, and contrary to popular legend, they did not in fact ban the bagpipes, the Gallic language, or meeting in public. The Act did ban the wearing of Highland dress and tartan for civilian men, but military units and women could still don the Highland garb. The more important acts were the Acts of Attainder, which removed land and titles from rebel families, and the Heritable Jurisdictions Act. This act sought to remove all judicial authority and land power from the clan chiefs and reassert crown control. This act did as much to dismantle the clan system as the later Highland clearances would. The government, with all this, aimed to remove the ability of the clans to rise as rebel forces against the king or conscript men for the Jacobite cause. It would be dismantled and left in no position to fight again. One of those who rode the coattails of victory was William Augustus, the Duke of Cumberland. He rode to London to the acclaim of the public, but aside from the oppressed people of Scotland, there were others who seized the opportunity to knock Cumberland down a peg or two. These attacks were in part done in collusion with the Prince of Wales, Cumberland's rebellious older brother Frederick, who'd long flirted with Jacobites and Tory adversaries to thumb his nose at his brother and father to make his own mark on British royalty. Cumberland suffered a humiliating turnaround in his fortunes. He was harshly rebuffed by his critics in his domestic attempts to reform the army, as some feared a monarch with a standing army and megalomaniacal tendencies. Cumberland would fall further later, but for now, 
we will return back to what's happening with the Jacobites. Charles at this point in his life was barely speaking to his father and completely blanking Henry for the cardinal at Caper. Charles had determined to take this time to hunt and romance women. He excelled at this second part. In a summer which Charles rejoiced in the defeat of Cumberland at Lafelt by Marshal Saxe, some reporting at the time that Cumberland had to turn tail and run away to escape, Charles instead was turning to Louise de Rohan Gemini, his cousin, and a woman whom he fell into an intense, passionate affair with. This affair was not approved of by Louise's family, who tried to keep the two apart, but if anything, Charles enjoyed the hunt even more, with continual illicit nighttime visits to her rooms. The problem came when Louise fell pregnant and her husband returned from fighting in the Netherlands. After a fraught time of Louise trying to convince her husband it was his child, Louise's mother increased security around the couple's house to prevent Charles making his way to them. If they were banking on Charles being chastened and making a dignified retreat, the family were dead wrong. Charles kept appealing to the Gemini residence at three in the morning, threatening to kill himself, then threatening to besiege the house, and then take a new lover. And then he pulled out his pistols and fired into the front of the house. Louise's family made her end the affair, but Charles rather coldly ignored all of her letters afterwards and met Louise once to inform her he had taken a new lover, the 40-something Princess Marie-Louise de Talmont. The prince was throwing himself into his own enjoyment when in 1748 his previous French allies signed a treaty at Aix-la-Chapelle, or Aix-la-Chapelle, ending the war of the Austrian succession. France had used the conflict to further its own interests and weaken Britain's influence. King Louis had exploited the Jacobite desire to seize the throne, to cause disruption on the mainland, and divert British troops from Europe. Once their objectives were achieved, France felt there was little need to continue a war that was continually killing French troops and spending vast amount of French financial resources. The treaty that was negotiated contained a clause inserted by Britain that neither James, Henry, nor Charles could reside in French territory. As well as having King Louis recognise the Hanovers as the rightful royals of Britain, Charles was going to be evicted back to Rome. Charles wasn't perturbed by this development. He firmly believed if he courted enough public opinion, it might be more difficult to kick him out. But after the treaty was ratified with Britain and France formally politely requesting Charles leave several times, only to be rebuffed, King Louis and his ministers took the gloves off. Charles was en route to the opera in December 1748, when armed French militia seized him detained him and imprisoned him in Vincennes, sending his assistants and servants to the Bastille and raiding his house. After some time in prison, Charles reluctantly complied and was escorted to the border to Switzerland. Charles left, but immediately returned to Avignon and papal protection. As George II in London proclaimed victory, Charles had Madame de Talmont join him in Avignon, where he threw a party leaving the Pope to foot the bill, much to the church's chagrin. Charles was planning to thumb his nose at all of Europe. He disappeared from his exile in Avignon, and in disguise made his way back to Paris, hiding in various safe houses and writing to his father in 1750 to renew his regency. James knew not where Charles was, but could probably conclude that a plot was afoot. It's not known if Charles kept in touch with Louise de Rohan, but she'd given birth to hers and Charles's son, called Charles Godefroy, who sadly did not survive long. 
He was buried in Louise's family crypt. History doesn't record if Charles knew or reached out. He was trying instead to return to England. In September 1750, Charles, disguised as a monk with an eye patch and avoiding British troops on the English coast, made his way to London in secret. Greeting supporters and seeing the sights in the capital he never got to conquer. Some argue Charles was trying to raise a new rebellion, but again the English Jacobites would not stand. Most importantly, and for future prospects went, were the accounts that Charles may have renounced his Catholic faith and secretly been welcomed into the Anglican faith. This would have been a very calculated remove to remove the Catholic objection to his taking the throne, but apart from this, Charles didn't achieve much in furthering the cause, and yet some Jacobites still remain true to him. One such group conceived what's been known as the Elebank Plot. The Elebank in question was Patrick Murray. Lord Elebank's brother Alexander was the architect of this plot, which seemingly revolved around either abducting the king when he was making a trip to the theatre, to a full riot with an insurrection to seize St. James's Palace. Many of these were fanciful schemes, and most all of them never got beyond the planning stage, but the group was betrayed by one of their own, an Alastair Rugue MacDonnell of Glengarry, a former Royal Ecossais soldier. After postponing the November 1752 start, the plotters scattered, and Alexander Murray fled to France. Only one plotter was caught, a Dr Archibald Cameron, who was tried convicted of treason and executed. But Charles had moved on, both geographically and personally. Now living in Ghent, he'd split from Madame de Talmont, who caustically remarked to him that he didn't need friends, but victims. He'd found a new love in the form of Clementina Walkenshaw. Now, some of you might recall in a previous episode, she'd helped Nelson Charles through a particularly bad fever. Telling her family that she was heading to a living convent in Europe, she instead reached France and found a letter from Charles with 50 Louis d'Or and instructions to come to Ghent. Clementina was not of the highborn Protestant bride that would have secured royal patronage for another country or troops to the throne, but she would his companion for the next eight years or so. In Britain there was a small sense of calm, but by the mid-1750s the fragile peace between France and Britain fractured. Both countries had been skirmishing over territory in North America, and it developed into the Seven Years' War. The Duke of Cumberland's role in this began in around 1757, when he was placed at the head of British Hanoverian forces, probably feeling confident of victory on the continent, until July 25th, 1757, and the Battle of Hastenbeck, when the French attack caused Cumberland's army to withdraw, and then lose all sense of discipline, fleeing all the way to the North Sea. Realising there was a risk of the army being overrun by the French, King George sent word to the Duke of Cumberland to negotiate a separate peace. The negotiations between Cumberland and the Duke de Richelieu is the Convention of Klosterseven. Under the Convention's terms, Hanover had to withdraw from the Seven Years' War and submit to partial occupation of Hanover by French troops. Cumberland signed to avoid being taken prisoner, but the deal was reviled by Britain and her European allies, who blamed Britain for abandoning them. Even though he had authorised the talks, King George would later condemn his son and the deal, openly saying, Here is my son, who has ruined me and disgraced himself. Cumberland would later retire from public office and military office, and Barr, advising later King George III, he never returned to public life. He suffered a stroke in 1760 and passed away, aged 44, on Halloween 1765. 
In some circles, he'd forever be known as Butcher Cumberland and gave the Union Jack the derogatory nickname of the Butcher's Apron in Scotland. Much like Prince Charles, the Duke of Cumberland's high point was the 45, and in comparison, it all went downhill from there. Around the same time in Europe, Charles focused more on his own life. He continued to live with Clementina Walkinshaw, but their relationship was tempestuous at best and downright abusive and toxic by modern standards. Despite having a daughter named Charlotte in 1753, the two would often argue and fight, much of which was due to the increased alcohol intake of Charles. His drunken behaviour began to mar his reputation and hurt his standing with his allies. When stories of the Jacobite heir thrashing his wife in a cane in public circulated, people began to stay away. The French, keen to exploit the Jacobite threat in 1759, tried to arrange a meeting with Charles to try and get the Jacobite forces on side. Charles turned down constant meetings until February 7th. French Foreign Minister Choiseul came to meet the Prince, who was not only late, but drunk. He failed to impress the Minister, who felt Charles should take no part in any invasion planning or execution of it whatsoever. He would merely be a figurehead to rally domestic support. This invasion came to nothing, and was the last time France seriously considered the Jacobite forces a useful ally. Charles was no longer seen as reliable to the French, and therefore the Stuarts were cast aside. Another opportunity for James, Charles and Henry came in 1760, when George II died in October after collapsing at the palace. With Prince Frederick dying in the 1750s, the crown then passed to George's grandson, who became King George III. This development did sway some Jacobites back to becoming loyal government supporters, because unlike other Hanoverians, George III was born and raised in the UK. Some could argue that Charles was born in Italy, and given that the King George was actually born in the country, maybe had a better claim. There was also the underlying fact that Charles was now developing into a middle-aged bitter man well into the drink and far from the fresh-faced hero of Preston Pans in the legends. Charles would suffer another fall from grace with the implosion of his relationship with Clementina. She had, in July 1759, with six-year-old Charlotte in tow, stolen away in a carriage and fled hundreds of miles to France. Clementina left a letter for Charles, who had gone out on a hunt, telling him in no uncertain terms it was his violent, unreasonable behaviour that drove his family from him. Charles, cycling somewhere between rage and despair, sent John Stuart to try and get his wife and child back, but Stuart was unsuccessful. Charles also wrote to John Gordon of the Scots College in Paris, stating he'd burn every convent in town and stated if he could only get one of those people back, they should secure his daughter. But Clementina had slipped Charles's men and was in the convent of Saint-Denis, under the protection of King Louis of France. And much to Charles's ire and despair, it later came to light that his own father, King James, had known of the escape and given it his blessing. Things were not getting better for the Stuarts as the years went by. In 1762, James suffered a stroke and from then on was mostly bedbound until New Year's Day, 1766, when James III of England and Eighth of Scotland died of another stroke. He lay in state with full royal regalia and was buried in a vault in St Peter's Basilica. His youngest son, Cardinal Henry, said masses at his new diocese of Frascati. 
Charles decided to visit Italy on a whim and arrived on January 23rd to the news of his father's death. History does not record his reaction, but the hopes of the remaining Jacobites now fell on Charles's shoulders. The Jacobite king entered the Stuart Palace to cries of Viva el Rey and Te Deum services were held. The two brothers, who had reconciled before their father's death, greeted each other as cardinal and king. James was a titan of the Jacobite cause. He held the banner of Jacobitism for over six decades and survived at least three English and British monarchs since his father was deposed. He was a man of principle and piety who would love to have reigned over Britain, but unlike his successor, was happy where he was. James's death marked the end of an era and the time when the Jacobite movement was the greatest threat to the great British regime at the time. Charles had become king to Jacobite supporters, but not to the Vatican. The Holy See declined to recognise Charles as king, recognising George III as the King of Great Britain. Cardinal Henry had tried to lobby his bosses at the Vatican to reconsider on his brother's behalf, but to no avail. Charles would go forward shunning any event where he was not officially addressed as King Charles III. The students who sang Te Deums to Charles at church were expelled. The game had changed. Between the drinking and the Vatican, the Jacobite leadership was on the wane, and cracks were showing. Henry despised Charles's drinking and the spectacle it created. Charles, in turn, resented his younger brother being his keeper, and often felt he was like his jailer trying to control him. It may be that Charles's excesses with alcohol inspired Henry's later religious paper, Sins of the Drunkard. But Henry stayed loyal to his brother and king, negotiating with the Pope to have Charles given all the honours associated with the Count of Albany. Henry convinced Charles that this was for the best, and after visiting the Pope, was finally seen as a person of importance again. Through 1770, Charles enjoyed his time in Tuscany, before being married in 1772 by proxy in Paris to Princess Louise of stolberg gedern This was a political marriage, and Louise was also related to committed Jacobites, and the French were willing to provide a sizeable pension. The couple met in Ancona in April and were officially married. Louise was young, noble and good-natured. Charles was red-faced, foul temperament, and continued to drink heavily to the point of losing control of all bodily functions. In the family home, he would subject his staff to continual verbal and physical abuse. His wife would also suffer these vicious attacks. Charles accused her of infidelity and moved to Florence to keep her in his control. In a severe case of self-fulfilling prophecy, Louise chose adultery as her rebellion. Louise had affairs with various men, but fell hard for Count Alfredo Vittori, whose younger features and attractive appearance turned Louise's head compared to Charles, whose legs had swollen were covered in leaking sores that gave off awful stenches in the marital bed. On St Andrew's Day 1780, Charles drank even more and went ballistic, beating his wife and attempting to strangle her in the company of others. This, for Louise, was the last straw. As the couple made their way to a visit to the convent of the Bianchette, a place recommended by the Duke of Tuscany, they left the coach and the Duchess of Albany and her female companion ran into the convent ahead of the pack and the slow-moving Charles. The doors were then barred to him, 
The Jacobite king was informed his wife had sought sanctuary at the convent and was under the protection of the Grand Duke and Duchess of Tuscany. Though furious and raging, threatening to shoot several of her accomplices, Charles was powerless to act and went home, smashing most of his property in a rage. Not long after, King Gustav of Sweden negotiated a settlement where the marriage dissolved and Louise left the convent to live with Count Vittori. Charles was once again humiliated and alone. His fortune somewhat improved afterwards as attempts to speak to his daughter Charlotte Walkinshaw in Paris were successful. She then arrived in Rome to see her father in 1784. The daughter, who'd barely seen him since she was six, had become a thirty-something woman, who Charles honoured with a banquet on St Andrew's Day 1784. Charlotte would come to provide her father with the care he needed, dressing his wounds and in account of one man, chastising visitors who had heard their questions leading her father to recount the distressing aftermath of Culloden and the 45, reducing the king to tears and fits of emotion. Charles had turned a corner in his life. He legitimised Charlotte and proclaimed her Her Royal Highness the Duchess of Albany. Returning to Rome, it was even said he wrote to Charlotte's mother, Clementina, offering his friendship, a reconciliation of sorts. It was the only one of his partners he ever offered an olive branch to, but the shakiness of his writing would indicate a man who was a shadow of his former self. His final years were paid for out of pensions from King Louis of France, and bizarrely, King George III of Britain had taken pity on Charles and wished he could do more to ease his suffering, but political realities dictated he keep away given that George was still somewhat fearful of a Jacobite takeover. The end for the Bonnie Prince came in January 1788 when Charles suffered a stroke. Charlotte and Charles's valet John Stuart were constantly by the royal bedside. Henry wasn't there at the time but had continued to try to preserve his brother's soul using the same Irish Franciscan clergy to administer the last rites who had attended their father, King James. On January 31st, 1788, with Charlotte and John Stuart at his side, Charles breathed his last at the age of 67. Henry had wanted his brother given a royal funeral, but protocol meant the Pope refused, given that Charles was not a king and fear of British wrath at a royal funeral for a Jacobite. Henry circumvented this somewhat by holding the funeral in his own cathedral at Frascati. Henry Stuart acted as a celebrant to Charles's Requiem Mass, and guards were outside the cathedral controlling the masses who attended. After the funeral and a respectable time lapse, Charles's mortal remains were removed to St Peter's Basilica in Rome, where Charles was laid to rest beside his father. Charles Edward Stuart was a conflicted, vicious, tragic figure. He was raised as the heir apparent to the Jacobite throne, and Charles had always felt it was his destiny, rightly or wrongly, to take back the British throne on behalf of his family. His failure to do so was a constant source of pain and misery, which he took out on others and on himself with alcohol abuse. He got as close as any of his family to reclaiming his throne, but the failure would live with him for the rest of his life, as the Jacobite movement started its sharp decline. On the death of Charles... Henry took the mantle of King Henry IX of Great Britain, France and Ireland. There were still some diehards who wanted to support him, but he'd never see the UK, having spent the majority of his life in Rome and Frascati. As a cardinal, he 
he signed his letters Henry Rex and had his servants in royal livery addressing him as Your Majesty. Henry also wanted to avoid any potential issues with succession by designating Charles Emmanuel of Sardinia as his heir in his will to the Jacobite claim to the British throne. Henry had risen to the role of Vice-Chancellor to the Vatican years before becoming King, and merely added in the touching of sufferers for the evil and holding courts of foreign visitors to his duties. He tended to avoid overtly political acts, except in 1792, when he issued a very firm protest to the Pope when Vatican documents referred to George III as King of Britain, rather than the Duke of Hanover, which is how Henry represented him as a usurping monarch. Cardinal Henry was affected, as many in Europe, by the seismic upheaval of the French Revolution. He no doubt would have been repulsed by news that the revolutionaries had disinterred his grandfather James II's mortal remains and thrown them into the River Seine. The revolution then claimed King Louis XVI in the wave of executions that followed, and as the papacy allied with a coalition against the new French regime, it appeared war would paralyse Europe yet again. In 1793, a French Republican officer was murdered by Italians as he distributed revolutionary pamphlets in Rome. The French Directory held Rome responsible, and despite a detachment of British troops to help, Napoleon Bonaparte led an army into Italy in 1796, pillaging all the way down the country until Henry and other clergy had paid roughly 30 million francs in valuables to stop the advance. But in 1797, December the French continued their assault after another fatal incident. Three months later, in February 1798, the French entered Rome, capturing the Pope and flying the French tricolour over Castel Sant'Angelo, proclaiming the new Roman Republic. Some opportunistic revolutionaries and thugs took advantage of the chaos to ransack the villas of nobles and cardinals. Henry, however, had foreseen this coming and hid most of his valuables in houses around Frascati. When the mob was sighted, Henry took flight and headed to Austrian-held Naples, and from there and from there to Sicily, with the King and Queen of Naples and the British army, once the French had come forward and taken Naples. From here, Henry was intending to head to Venice via Corfu, and got there in May 1798 after weeks of delays following poor weather. Once safe in Venice, he sought refuge at a monastery. Reports of the Cardinal reached the Times newspaper in London in 1800. This was read by some concern from George III, who offered a yearly pension of four to five thousand pounds a year, which Henry accepted, be it through financial desperation or the belief he was being repaid an old family debt, stemming all the way back to James II's wife's dowry, which hadn't been paid by Parliament. In July of 1798, Cardinal Henry arrived back in Rome after hostilities had begun to cease, still in a good state financially. He had the riches of Frascati with a royal pension to boot. In 1803, he was offered promotion to Ostia, but kept the palace in Frascati after pleading with the Pope. Despite the promotion, Henry mainly stayed in Frascati, as he felt weaker and become more unwell. He lived till 1807 when on July 13th, Henry Benedict Stuart, Cardinal and King of England, died of a fever after taking to bed with a chill at the age of 82. The body of the last Stuart Jacobite was taken to Rome and buried at St Peter's with his father and brother. His papers were eventually bought by the Crown and the executor of his will 
gave the royal badge of the garter and thistle to Prince George of Great Britain. When Prince George later became King George IV, he also contributed an amount of funds to renovate the tomb of James II in France and help erect a monument to James III, Charles III and Henry IX in the Vatican. In 1822, George IV marched into Scotland on a royal visit. The revival of all things Scottish comes from the organiser of this welcome, one Sir Walter Scott. His novel, Waverley, published in 1814, had started the germination of the story of the noble Highlander, fighting for the noble but doomed Jacobite cause. George IV was delighted by Highland reels and tartan kilts, all of which were rarely worn or played in the lowlands, but came to embody noble warrior Scotland. Far from fighting, the Scottish nation began to embrace this narrative as Stuart memorabilia and interest rose in this Scottish romanticism. It could almost be argued that George kind of jumped on this bandwagon of Scottish romanticism, finding something noble in that myth that even he could find to give some form of arms towards what should rights be considered his enemies. Some Scots nationalists would later use Jacobite symbolism to hearken to a Stuart restoration to free Scotland under a less radical and more conservative monarchist rule, whilst many people supported Britain and saw Jacobitism as kind of a bit of kitsch fun, in the same way people collect Soviet or Eastern German trinkets today. But Jacobite diehards remained, first from the courts of Sardinia, then to the courts of Modena, and then to Mary III, the consort of King Ludwig of Bavaria. Around the same time as an exhibition of Stuart memorabilia and documentation, which received mass amounts of attention and was funded in part by Queen Victoria, the Order of the White Rose and the Jacobite Legitimist League both formed. The Jacobite Legitimist League, probably best known for its crowning protest of leaving placards outside Buckingham Palace, proclaiming Mary Queen of Britain, rather than the soon to be coronated Edward VII. Despite her being a German, and despite him ruling Germany, Kaiser Wilhelm II advised his uncle Edward that the Jacobite campaigners should be shot. Ironically, Wilhelm indirectly caused the downfall of Jacobitism with the outbreak of World War I. With all nations hyper-patriotic, everyone was under scrutiny. Even the British royal family, seeing the anti-German sentiment and violence across the nation towards Germans, changed their name from Saxe-Coburg to Windsor. The Jacobite movement was shaken by the fact that the Crown Prince of Bavaria and Mary's heir, Ruprecht, was not only a German, but a proud and capable German army commander. Many Jacobites probably expressed shock, like that of John Buchan, a member of the White Rose Club, who was disbelieving and dismayed that the man he saluted as the true Prince of Wales ordered Germans to shoot at his own subjects and countrymen. In its decline again after this, the current flag bearers of the Honest Cause are the Royal Stuart Society, who commemorate the lineage of the Divine Stuart line, without asserting, of course, the rights of any particular individual. Today's monarch in the Jacobite secession would be Franz von Bayern, of the former royal family of Bavaria, the Wittelsbachs. Franz, or King Francis, as Jacobites call him, has, much like everyone since Henry Benedict, 
never actually claimed the crown or made a serious move on the crown of Great Britain, and his spokesman has called the matter an interesting hypothetical. It can be argued that the main Jacobite threat to the British crown ended when Henry died in 1807, but somehow the spirit of the Jacobite cause has lived on throughout history to this day, be it the love of the underdog, the enduring legend of the Highland warrior, certain historical fictions that have gone quite well. It's a story that continues to captivate people and somehow manage to astound with just how tumultuous the period was. And I hope, at least in some form with this podcast, to have helped share the story of the Jacobites, to keep it alive, even in my own small way. And that's it. After 25 episodes, I've reached the end of the Jacobite narrative. It only remains for me to offer my deepest thanks to everyone who's been on this journey with me, to anyone who's ever dropped me an email, to anyone who's ever written to me. Thank you from the bottom of my heart and for giving me the chance to tell my story and carry on the fame of the Jacobites. Um, I'm going to be taking a break from podcasting for a bit. I'll come back with a new podcast, which I'll put details on. But if the opportunity arises, I may well do some more Jacobite podcast uh, updates, maybe individual portraits of Jacobites. I don't know. Let me know. Uh, Drop me a line and we will see where we go from here. But from now, with the greatest thanks to you all, this is the Jacobite podcast signing off. (laughs) 